Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. Okay, why don't we get started? See, we got a few more folks coming in. My name is David Bruner. I'm one of the pastors here at Knox Presbyterian Church. I want to welcome you to this Wednesday night study, our study in the Long Story Short series. We are on week what? Seven, um, which is looking, which is called Conquest, which is focused uh, tonight. We'll be focusing on the book of Joshua. Um, before we dive in and start talking about that, let me say a prayer for us. Good and gracious God, our Father in heaven, thanks for bringing us all here tonight. Thanks for those in this room who have set aside um, time to be part of your body tonight to study your word. We ask God that um, you would abide with us as we read the book of Joshua and struggle with some challenging texts. And we pray that you would give us wisdom and faithfulness to follow Jesus uh, in all we do. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, so um, how many of you had read uh, the book of Joshua before or were acquainted with it before? A few, a few of us, actually a few more than I had thought. Um, so it's often the case that Joshua gets lost in the shuffle. Um, so we're going to take a look at uh, this book tonight. In particular, we're going to look at Joshua 6, which is the story of Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. Um, it's probably the most famous passage from the book of Joshua. Um, and you'll, you'll see why if you're familiar with it, it'll jump out to you in a minute. Um, it's also one of the most challenging passages. Um, sometimes that's the case with scripture, that the best stuff and the hardest stuff are kind of woven together. Um, many Christians are challenged by Joshua and its depiction in Joshua 6 and elsewhere of what we might call divinely authorized violence. So we'll talk more about this in a second. People struggle with it. I wanted to say at the outset, um, it's okay to struggle with the Bible. It's okay to struggle with the Bible. It's okay not to get it. It's okay to disagree with it. It's okay to think, I'm not sure about this. I, I don't know if I want anything to do with this at all. Um, that's okay. One of the scriptures I keep coming back to in studying the Bible is from Genesis 32, when um, Jacob wrestles with the angel. You know, he's going back to see his brother and he, he comes to the river and he encounters this man who turns out to be God and they wrestle all night long and uh, the, the man, the angelic figure says, okay, let me go, let me go. And he, Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And I love that attitude <laughs> because it says, one, we're gonna fight with God sometimes and two, we're determined to um, wrest out of God a blessing. And of course, God is always more willing to bless us than we are to be blessed. But I, I, that attitude of, I'm not gonna let you go until you bless me, I think that's an appropriate attitude to bring with us to scripture. So, it's okay to struggle with scripture. That's the first thing I wanna say. So let's open our Bibles and turn to Joshua 6. And as usual, I'm going to read it. And then we're going to split up into pairs. I invite you to turn to a person next to you. 
can be your spouse or a friend, or it can be someone else. You can ignore your spouse if you want to. And uh, you can, <laughs> and you can um, talk about this passage, talk about what strikes you, what you notice, what seems unusual or interesting, and uh, one um, question or problem that you have from this passage as well. So I'm going to read Joshua 6. Uh, this is just the whole chapter, and you can follow along. Now Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the Israelites. No one came out and no one went in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have handed Jericho over to you along with its king and soldiers. You shall march around the city, all the warriors circling the city once. Thus you shall do for six days with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times the priests blowing the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and all the people shall charge straight ahead. So Joshua, son of Nun, summoned the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and have seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns in front of the Ark of the Lord. To the people, he said, go forward and march around the city. Have the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. As Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets. The rear guard came after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. To the people Joshua gave this command, you shall not shout or let your voice be heard, nor shall you utter a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So the ark of the Lord went around the city, circling it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord passed on, blowing the trumpets continually. The armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. On the second day, they marched around the city once and then returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at dawn and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And, then, and at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers we sent. As for you, keep away from the things devoted to destruction so as not to covet and take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel an object for destruction bringing trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. Then they devoted to destruction by the edge of the sword all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. 
Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of it and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought Rahab out, along with her father, her mother, her brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought all her kindred out and set them outside the camp of Israel. They burned down the city and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her, Joshua spared. Her family has lived in Israel ever since, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua then pronounced this oath, saying, Cursed before the Lord be anyone who tries to build this city, this Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Okay, turn to someone next to you, come up with a, a thought, a question, an insight, a comment, and then we'll come back together. All right, why don't we come back together? You all had a lot to say about that one, which is a good sign. Um, who would like to share a comment or question that they had or a comment or question that your neighbor had? I actually have three questions. Jeff answered one of them. You stand for it. Oh God, thank you, I appreciate that, thank you. One is I'm wondering when Joshua was written. Mm -hmm. um, two, was he real? Mm -hmm. And then three, is this a story as with some other stories in the Bible where God is, quote, condoning violence? Is it a, is it a story written to excuse what the Israelites did? Sure. Um, those are some great questions. I'll try and tackle them in order. So the further back you go in the Old, Te Old Testament, the older the books get, generally speaking, and the longer they are passed on by oral tradition prior to their being written down. And the harder it is to corroborate them with what they call extra biblical evidence. So, um, if you ask, you know, when we speak as historians and not as believers, right? If you're a historian, you say, okay, was Abraham a real person? The answer is it's hard to prove or disprove that he was a real person based on archaeology because we just haven't found anything. So there's a lot of room to move. The, the further on in the Old Testament you get, the closer to our present era you get, the more evidence there starts to become. So for a long time, for instance, scholars debated whether or not King David was a real person. There was a vigorous debate about this. Scholars love to argue about this. Nothing is more satisfying to a scholar than an argument that can never be resolved. And then they found some archeological evidence that referred to David, the king of Israel. And I forget what it was, but I can provide more detail if you want. It was, a, you know, as is often the case with these things, a piece of rock lying in the sand somewhere in an ancient language. So as far as we know, or as far as I know, there's no archeological evidence that 
supports or rules out what's described in Joshua. So it's, it's the same sort of situation as we talked about last week with regard to Moses, where there's not a ton of evidence, there's not um, decisive evidence to support it, and there's not decisive evidence to refute it. My um, posture towards this part of the Old Testament tends to be focusing on, focusing on the words on the page and letting the archaeologists do their thing and receiving the story as it is written here as God's word to me and to the church. That's not to say that question you asked is not important, but that's where I want to put my focus. Now, what, what's important is the final question you asked as well. Is this a story designed to sanction violence? That's, I'm, we're going get, to get back to that. that. We'll be talking about that a lot. But those are great questions. Randy. Now, this isn't, this isn't something that, uh, that Diane and I actually talked about, but it's a question that just came to mind. And actually, we did talk a little bit about uh, the, the six days and the seventh day and yeah. all that stuff. Is there any connection here to this being kind of like a, a reenactment of the creation story? <laughs> I was just thinking about that as I was reading that. Um, I love it when students accidentally agree with me because it makes me feel so much smarter. So, yeah, I mean, it's so, right, they march around the city six times, and then the seventh day, blow the trumpets, everybody yell, bam, the walls come tumbling down. I actually, it's hard not to read that as an echo of the Genesis creation story, and it would be interesting to explore that. I mean, it certainly works works that way, right? In Genesis, all the work is done on the first six days, and then the seventh day is the climax of rest. Here, it's, it's a little bit different, but nevertheless, on the seventh day is when is the climax of the story. Yeah, I, th I think that would be a great, if you, could pre if you wanted to preach a sermon on this text, that would be an interesting way to do it. Is this the first time that the number seven is, is written? I mean, we had the creation story with seven, is this the first time that seven reappears as a specific number? I'm not sure off the top of my head. I'd be surprised if it was. Yeah, I, I think it, so. Seven, seven and three and 40, these are numbers with significance for the Israelites. So 40 tends to be, you know, come up a lot in the context of 40 years in the wilderness. Then Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. It's, it's often a kind of a euphemism that means a good long time. It's not a precise number. Um, so when, you know, if Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, he might have been there for 37 and a half days. He might have been there for 76 days, right? Like the, the point is it was a good heckin' chunk of time. Um, yeah, I'd assume that somewhere between Genesis 1 and Joshua 6, there's the use of the number seven. What other comments or questions do we have? Peg, I'm gonna give you the mic. What did the people of Jericho do that was so bad that they had to be completely destroyed? Hmm. They were on the sure, so they were, they were on the promised land, but is that, is that an offense, right? I think that's a great question. Yeah, it, it speaks to the difficulty of this text. One, so there's two questions, right? One is, Morally speaking, from our perspective in 2023, does anything ever warrant wiping out a whole group of people, men, women, and children? The other question is, 
if there is such a thing, did the Canaanites do it? Um, and you get, you get little glimpses of things here and there. So the, the, the strong assumption of the deuterocanonical books, right? So the books from Deuteronomy through uh, Second Kings, right? The books written by the cynical person kind of watching the empire crumble. His strong assumption, I'm calling him a he, I don't know if he's a he, right? His strong assumption is um, the other ancient Near Eastern groups worship false gods. And it's something that rubs off on Israel. And there's probably more than a little truth to that. That, you know, there, so, and the, the problematic religious practices characteristic of ancient Near Eastern religion were not unknown among them. So, you know, I mean, the, so the prohibition against sacrificing your kids to gods is probably something that's playing off against other religious groups. In this context, in Joshua 6, I don't know if there's a particular, it's not a punishment for something. It's not a particularly clear response, which is part of what's troubling. So, you know, in other parts of the Bible, it works differently, right? God might mete out a punishment and we might think that's very harsh, but at least it's in response to something. This is a little bit different, so. Go ahead. I just wanted to know in 14, in 614, it says, uh, oh, I'm sorry. It says, but maybe it's 18, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own mm -hmm. destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring disaster on it. What is a devoted thing, and how would I recognize it if I were <laughs> tromping through the streets of Jericho? That's a great question, Dottie. Um, we're actually going to talk about that as well. That's the second section after this. So just sit on that question for a second. Um, did you all catch the verse that Dottie was talking about? So does anyone's translation, so my translation in verse 18 says, as for you, keep away from the things devoted to destruction. Does anyone else have a different translation? Accursed things, okay. Anyone else have a different one? Okay, so we're, we're all pretty much the same. So that's, a, that's an interesting part of this passage that helps in some ways to cash that out. We're gonna come back to that in a second. Um, any other questions or comments? We were kind of bothered by the fact that there, other than Rahab, there wasn't one person worthy of saving. Yep. But boy, get all the gold and silver and bring that with you. <laughs> yep, sure. Yep. I mean, it's... So part of the reason I chose this passage is because it's hard. And it's, again, it's okay to struggle with it. That's part of it, right? Is that Rahab and her family do escape. And... But everyone else is consigned to the sword, men, women, and children, and I think cattle and things like that, right? She's rewarded for being, she's rewarded yes. for hiding and not telling on. Correct. Because she would have been in good stead with her compatriots, mm -hmm. and she told, hey, 
bags of spies for you. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but she decided to hide them and not say anything about it. So she's being rewarded for a good deed. Right. We have to suppose, I guess, that no one else did that. That's true. I mean, it's still... Um, she is distinguished by being rewarded for good behavior in the eyes of the narrator. Nevertheless, from, from our point of view, the, the, the vast mass of the Canaanites are consigned to destruction, and this troubles us. You, okay, I have a patented scale for um, gauging people's responses to a passage, and you've probably never heard of this before. It's uh, green, yellow, and red. So that's a joke. Um, so if you read this passage and you're basically green, if you, don't, if you don't find it problematic, raise your hand. Okay, that, that wasn't a trick question. Sometimes there are people that are just willing to roll with it. So if you are a yellow and you're a little uncomfortable, uh, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, several yellows. And if you're red, if you're reading this and you're thinking, ay, 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 I can't handle this, this is terrible. Okay, we got a couple reds. So I would say, I would say, uh, virtually no greens, strong majority yellow with a strong second place red. Okay, so this is helpful to me in knowing where we're at. Um, so let me talk a little bit about some of what I think makes this passage so challenging for us as Christians today. And we can see if you track with me. So on one hand, Christians must affirm that God is morally good and morally righteous. This probably sounds very obvious, but it's sometimes helpful to spell these things out. God is not capricious or morally undependable. So what's the line? I think it's from the book of James. It says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's that's the God we worship. That's the God we believe in. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We have good reasons for thinking that God does not approve the killing of innocent women and children. We have good biblical reasons, right? So this is, I'm trying to give you the horns of the dilemma, at least for me. So if you take only this point of view, some, some people on the extremes of this point of view say this passage is a moral disaster. Joshua 6 is completely incompatible with Christian convictions about the nature of God and God's moral character. And the only solution is to take passages like Joshua 6 and other problematic passages from the Old Testament and excise them from the Christian Bible. We need to simply jettison them and do away with them. So, uh, for instance, very early in the history of the church, there's a man named Marcion who dies maybe around 160 AD, so in the first century and a half of the church's existence, who basically says, yep, the, the Old Testament functions this way. The Old Testament is uh, very problematic. It's rife with a difficult morality and violence and all these morally problematic characters. We just have to jettison it. So he actually makes a move to, for Christians to jettison the Old Testament as a whole. And he's roundly rejected and condemned. 
Nevertheless, he's a sort of extreme representative of this point of view. Another person I thought of was Thomas Jefferson. Do any of you know the story about Thomas Jefferson's Bible? I, I don't see a lot. So Thomas Jefferson was a good um, product of the um, European Enlightenment. He believed in subjecting everything uh, every facet of human life, including our religious faith, to the rigorous scrutiny of reason. And so he had a lot of problems with the Bible. And rather than <laughs> work through them or, or, or anything like that, he simply said, okay, the Bible is defective. The Bible has a lot of problems. And so what he famously or infamously did is he literally took scissors and cut out the offending parts of the Bible. And he, sa he said, now this is the Thomas Jefferson edition of the Bible. And so in Th the Thomas Jefferson version of the Bible, Joshua 6 is not there, right? So that's, that is one way of handling this sort of problematic passage. And I should add, Joshua 6 is a particularly clear instance of them, but there are many others. Um, not just, uh, not exclusively in the Old Testament, although certainly there as well. So... That's one horn of the dilemma. On the other hand, Christians must not domesticate God. Christians must not domesticate God. God is not predictable, safe, or easy. And we must be wary of requiring God to conform to our human standards of what constitutes right and wrong rather than the other way around. I have here a quotation from Isaiah 55. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. Now, to be sure, in Isaiah 55 and elsewhere in Scripture, God's uh, uniqueness, his surprisingness, his startling strangeness to us is displayed primarily in his capacity to have mercy and to extend mercy even more widely than we might have previously thought. But nevertheless, um, I think we do well to remember this, this danger of domesticating God. If every time we look at scripture, we measure it according to our own standard of what pleases us, we will quickly find ourselves reading an increasingly small portion of scripture. Um, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they talk about Aslan, the lion. And Aslan is a big, scary lion. And so one of the characters who has never met him says, is Aslan, Aslan's a lion? And they say, yes. And he says, is Aslan safe? And he says, no, 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 no. Aslan is not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. He is not a tame lion, you know? And maybe this is just me, but I've, I always think of that quote in the context of struggling with Scripture anymore, uh, that I don't want to create a tame lion when I read the Bible. I want to allow for some rough edges and uh, rough patches. So, again, I'm going to go with an extreme here. Some advocates of this point of view might see no problem with Joshua 6 at all. There are people in the church today, many of them at, at, in more conservative wings of the church, who would just say, well, look, God is God. God can do whatever he wants. 
And if God decided to wipe out those poor Canaanites, that's fine. Um, I take exception to that point of view, as I imagine many of you would as well. Partly this is because of not just of the problematic content of passages like this, but also because of the problematic history of their reception in the life of the church. So for instance, our forefathers and foremothers, right? The idea of manifest destiny here in the United States, um, I think has roots or could be traced back to certain interpretations of Israel's entry into the promised land. So in other words, if, if you're an American and you're in the American East, you have this idea, this is a Christian nation and God has called us to come in and take away the land from the people who have it, who live here because, well, they, they really don't have any right to be here and by gosh, we're gonna take it away from them. That creates a potential for religiously authorized violence that goes beyond what's in the text, but draws on it. The other example I thought of is the, the difficult stuff that's happening in the Holy Land today. So it's the case that there are many folks on the Israeli side who take these texts very literally indeed. Not all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but enough to help us see the, the potential danger in this point of view as well. That um, this idea of, again, this, this land is ours and we're gonna take it away from you and if you don't like it, you can go pound sand. <laughs> so um, those are two historical examples I would point to, one from a couple centuries ago and one from the present day to talk about um, not just the danger in this passage, but some of the problematic uses to which this passage can be put or has been put. Are you all with me on the level of understanding at this point? Okay. So I've tried to paint for you the horns of a dilemma, okay? So on one hand, we wanna be able to affirm that God is morally good and morally righteous. On the other hand, we don't want to domesticate God. And we don't want to, I would say, and you all might not agree with me on this, I would say we don't want to domesticate the Bible either. We want to um, respect the rough patches and the rough edges of the biblical witness, even when we disagree with it. My solution is to try to live with the ambiguity of passages like these. We should not throw them out. We should not be like Thomas Jefferson and pull out our scissors and simply cut them out of the pages of our Bible, nor should we ignore them or tiptoe around them. This is by far the preferred option for pastors like me, <laughs> right? Uh, you just skip them, you don't acknowledge them, right? We just go over here, we go back to John 3.16, which everybody likes. Um, nor should we act like they don't pose a genuine challenge to our Christian convictions. But isn't, isn't this, I don't understand the, I mean, I think I understand the domestication, but since we as Christians have been exposed to the New Testament, Jesus came to talk to us about to love your neighbor as yourself, doesn't that 
put us in a, a position where we find the Old Testament unbearable in parts and not understanding it because we have experienced Jesus Christ. So we don't come to the Old Testament just knowing the Old Testament. Sure. We come to the Old Testament being Christians and having been exposed to Jesus Christ and his ministry. Mm -hmm. And therefore we look back at the Old Testament, whereas the nation of Israel and those people who are Jewish don't have the New Testament as part of their exposure, therefore they see it's personal. It's okay to kill peace, people that want to settle on the Gaza Strip because by golly, that's not yours, it's ours. Sure. So that's why I think it's hard for us because we are Christians mm. and we have been taught to love our neighbor. Sure, uh, there's a lot. And love the people there's that a lot are there, unlovable. Though. Yeah, so there's a couple things I would say. So the first is Christians and Jews have different interpretive jobs to do when reading their respective canons of scripture. So I know many Jews who would be troubled or horrified by the idea that you just take a passage like this and apply it in a direct and straightforward way. Many of them are Israelis, many of them are American Jews. I do think for us as Christians, yes, Jesus is at the heart of what it means to interpret the Bible. And we're gonna come back to that in a little bit. But yes, I would agree with you, right? I would say our encounter with Jesus in faith decisively tempers how we interpret the Old Testament, including passages like this one and, and other passages as well. Um, part of the challenge is how to read passages like this one still as God's word to us without simply discarding them or setting them aside, which I don't want to do. Is, is this still just establishing one God? I mean, still another, yet another story of, of God demonstrating like he did with the plagues sure. and, and Passover and, you know, parting the Red Sea. And is this another one of these kind of stories I, to support that? I think so. Except it's brutal. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a dimension of this story that's about the superiority of the Hebrew God over, over everybody. Um, and especially in the historical books, so in Joshua through Second Kings, I think you find there's a lot of spiritual contest stuff going on where you've got the Hebrew God and, and another pag pagan God and they're fighting and Yahweh comes out victorious. Yeah, I, I, that, that may be in the background here. Um, that's really the only way I can stay in the yellow. Sure. <laughs> you know, like you were just saying, that's the only way I can. Sure. But then you think about in the New Testament, like you were saying, John 3.16, well, within that same chapter, there's the vine mm -hmm. and he cuts, you know. Sure. That's pretty brutal, too. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, uh, that's, that's right. I mean, we like to act like the New Testament is all sweetness and light, but there are some very challenging passages in there as well. 
So part of the theological challenge you see in passages like this is very deeply woven into the Old Testament. So on one hand, whose God is the true God in the Old Testament? Israel's, at least in the eyes of the Bible, right? In the eyes of us as Christians. Israel's God is the real and authentic one, the God of all the world, the God who created the world. But God makes a covenant with only one people, with Israel. And so in the Old Testament, you find this tension between the very real particularity of Israel, there's only one chosen people and they're Israel, and the fact that God is a God for the whole world. So when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he says, go to the land that I will show you and uh, I, will be, I will bless the whole world through you. You will be blessed to be a blessing. And there's this vision of, um, yeah, both the specialness of Israel in the Old Testament and the universal scope of God's intended blessing are present in the Old Testament. And sometimes there's a tension between those things. Does that make sense? I just got it, I just got it. The Israelites are the chosen people. God is speaking to them, he's given them the law. He is telling them over and over again that this is the law that you live by, that you obey me. Now the Israelites, when they were wandering around in the desert, didn't do so well. They reverted back to the, because all these nations have gods, and they reverted back to the gods of Israel. So when he takes them finally to the promised land, a new generation of Israelites who have promised before they cross over the Jordan to obey all the laws that God has given them, the laws of Moses. Now, these countries that they're going to invade, Jericho and all the rest of them and all the kings and everything, that they have to... Um, wipe out, if you will, in order to take, you know, to make these 12 tribes and all this land is distributed among them. God is saying, you know what? Mm, you didn't do so well in the desert. I'm not going to let all these people who believe in a different God to influence you. If we kill, abolish man, woman, and child, and you are given the land sometimes the animals too, but the land, that I am more assured that you will follow my law. Now, of course, this plan doesn't work because every generation comes around and they forget, which my question is, there was no Sunday school or Jewish school that we taught our children. But anyway. Yeah. So that actually leads to the next thing I want to talk about. So I'm going to use that to get to some more background information here. Okay, so go back to verse 17 of chapter six. So this was Dottie's question and she's just brought us back to it earlier. So the, my new revised standard version says in verse 17, the city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Sandy's translation said accursed. Everyone else probably has the new revised standard. So this is the Hebrew word harem. Harem, H-E-R-E-M. Not to be confused with harem, 
H-A-R-E-M. They're very different words. They both reflect something wrong, but they're kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum of morality. Um, so elsewhere, the phrase is translated as devoted to the Lord or set aside for God. And it's, it's often in the context of things that are uh, devoted as an offering to God. So let's just uh, tick through some of these passages real quick. So let's look at Leviticus 27, which is the very last chapter of Leviticus. Leviticus 27 as a whole, the heading in my Bible is votive offerings, which is kind of like offerings related to a vow or a promise. Um, I believe the general idea here is that you might say, okay, Lord, I'm taking this long, dangerous, expensive trip. If I make it there and back safely, I will sacrifice an offering to you when I return. So you can see here um, in verse 28, nothing that a person owns that has been devoted to destruction for the Lord, that is harem for the Lord, be it human or animal or inherited land holding, may be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. So the idea, at least, is that if you, before you set out on your trip, if you say, okay, God, I'm going to, you know, if I make this trip, I go and come back, I will slay the fatted calf for you. You can't welch on the back end, right? You can't then say, okay, God, actually, I changed my mind. I'm now going to shift to these two small pieces of fruit that I'll sacrifice for you instead. When it's devoted for the Lord, it's devoted for the Lord, and there's no takebacks. okay? Let's look at Numbers 18, 14. Okay, so the heading in, for me in this paragraph is the priest's portion. So, and if you look at these concern um, offerings made to the Lord, but which by Old Testament law the priests were allowed to eat or to consume. Um, so you can see in verse 14, it says, every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that is devoted to the Lord, everything that is harem shall be, be yours, shall belong to the priests. Um, let's go to Deuteronomy 7.26. Okay. Now this is very interesting, right? So chapter 7 is one of those places in Deuteronomy where you start, it starts to do some foreshadowing. It starts to look ahead to the later books of the Bible. Start of chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, and he clears away many nations before you, then follows a long list of very Old Testament-sounding peoples. When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them. I'm pretty sure utterly destroy there is the word harem. Verse 3. Do not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for that would turn away your children from following me to serve other gods. So you see here the, the concern about the distinctive religious identity of the Hebrew people shining through. Skip to verse 14 in chapter 7. No, sorry, skip to verse 26 in chapter 7. I apologize, verse 26. Do not bring an abhorrent thing into your house, 
That's don't bring an image of their God, an idol of wood and stone. If you find a thing like that, just destroy it. Don't bring it into your house or you will be set apart for destruction like it. You must utterly detest and abhor it for it is set apart for destruction. So you see here, this is a, this is a term of art. It is a term used throughout the Old Testament and it has this mixture of meanings. So when it's used to mean destroy something, it means destroy it utterly, completely but it also has the sense of offering. Um, so you can use it to say, okay, I'm going to, you know, if I make it on this trip and back, this microphone is gonna be harem, and I'm just going to offer the microphone to the Lord, and I promise, and I can't take it back. Or if you're, um, if you're offering something to the Lord and the priests get it, the pri it's devoted to God, and therefore some of the priests can eat it, okay? Last one, let's look at 1 Samuel 15. This is quite a jump, um, but this one may be of interest to you. So this is uh, further ahead than where we are now. This is jumping to a period in the time of Israel when there is a king and Saul is the king. So look what happens here. I'm just going to read beginning at the start of verse 15. Samuel says to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Okay, so far, so familiar. This is another one of those places where there's a very harsh violence. And of course, in verse three, utterly destroy, that's that word harem. But watch what Saul does. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 soldiers of Judah. Saul came to the city of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go leave, withdraw from among the Amalekites or I will destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites withdrew. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. He took King Agag of the Amalekites alive, but utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the cattle and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was valuable and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. So what's happening here? Yes, exactly right. They're saving the gold. So Saul fails as king because he refuses to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Now, before we rush to say, oh, what's, what the heck is the matter here? Saul is being condemned for being insufficiently bloodthirsty. Something more interesting than that is happening. S Saul is enriching himself through warfare. So what he does is he puts to the sword all the worthless things, but he saves the king, who presumably has rich friends and relatives who might try and ransom him, and he saves all the, all the gold and all the silver, all the wealthy stuff he keeps for himself. So it turns out that this is one of the distinctive features of harem in the Old Testament. So harem is used to refer to a couple things. In the context of Joshua 6, in the context of warfare, it means a couple things. Israel waged war differently than other nations. In war, 
It is not Israel, but Yahweh, who does the heavy lifting and brings victory. So we saw this in Joshua 6, right? Where there is, you know, the old spiritual says, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Strictly speaking, there was no battle of Jericho, right? They weren't fighting outside the walls. They were just marching around in circles, blowing trumpets, and then the walls fell down. How did that happen? Well, God was on their side, so says the Bible. It is not Israel, but Yahweh who does the heavy lifting and brings victory. What is gained through war should only enrich and glorify God and not people. So I find this fascinating, right? Because as, as deeply troubling as I find the idea of God encouraging everybody, hey, wipe everybody out, I, I abhor that idea. Nevertheless, I find this helps me um, treat this passage with a bit more sympathy, because the idea behind harem, behind wiping everyone out in Jericho, is that it's a way of acknowledging that God is actually the victor of the battle and not the Hebrews. It's a way of acknowledging that God has done all the heavy lifting and returning to God everything of value in the city. Um, yeah. Sure. What? You, you, let me try it again, and I'll see if you can get it. So the idea is that, one of the ideas behind Harem is, A, acknowledging that God is the primary warrior on Israel's behalf. So they say, to justify what they did. Why, why is that not the case? Well, first of all, I don't think we know that. And second of all, I think that we're sticking with the words on the page. So the shape of Holy Scripture that we have before us is a story about God very much fighting on their side. And what we're searching for is a way to receive the words on the page as God's word to us today. So we're going, so that, that is one simple way to do it is to say, okay, Joshua represents a case of mass delusion. Right? This is yet another story of an ancient people who thought of, thought of themselves as, um, thought of their violence as special and religiously authorized. So you, someone might say that. Um, I don't want to say that because I think that puts us in the same camp as Thomas Jefferson. That's, that's my concern about that sort of attitude. Throughout all this discussion we've been having about um about all these, these moments of, of uh, destructive behavior. Yeah. Um, and, you know, suggesting that some people have said that maybe these moments as mm -hmm. described in scripture should be removed. Mm -hmm. um, I think without them, you lose the connection of the story, the fulfillment of the promise. Yes. Because without it, without these moments, without these events taking place, the fulfillment of the promise would never have taken place. Yeah, uh, thank you. That, and that's another good point, right? Is that one of the things we're going to see is, you know, when Jesus lived and died, there was no New Testament yet. And the New Testament is largely written partly out of the claim that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. 
So if we as Christians start poking holes in the Old Testament and, and leaving out parts we don't like, I think we're, you know, we're in danger of sawing off the branch we're sitting on. So, and I should say, part of what I'm trying to do here is draw a pretty fine line, right? I think at the end of the day, I think we are permitted as Christians to say a passage like Joshua 6 with harem, with wipe everybody out, is holy scripture. We need to give it at least that much respect. It is holy scripture and it functions as God's word to us. I can even go that far. However, I'm also trying to say it functions as God's word to us in a very particular way. And it is not the same as simply picking it up and saying, oh, okay, they destroyed everyone in the city. I guess that's what God wants me to do today. Um, so Randy's point is good. I bet you all have more questions and comments. I wanna try and keep going to land this plane um, before we run out of time. So bear with me a little bit here. Okay. Okay, what do we do when we encounter challenging passages like this or other ones throughout the Bible? One way of starting to answer it goes like this, and it begins with the reformational principle that scripture interprets itself. Scripture is its own interpreter. What that means is that when you encounter a hard passage of the Bible, it helps to read that hard passage in light of other parts of the Bible. So, what I've written here is a more expansive way of putting that same idea. You read each individual passage in light of the whole Bible, and you read the whole Bible in light of each individual passage. So, as Christians, we ought to constantly be students of Scripture, reading and rereading, and evaluating and reevaluating what each passage means in light of the whole biblical message. And uh, that's a tall order. I know some of you are thinking, Dave, you don't understand. I, I can't even see straight until I've had three cups of coffee in the morning. How am I going to find time to read and reread the Holy Bible? Well, that's fine. I'm in the same boat. But I think this is, this is our task, right? And this is part of the reason we as Christians are never done with Holy Scripture, is that the, um, we're never done with the task of um, reading and feeding ourselves on individual passages and then um, trying to interpret them in light of the message as the whole. Don't assume that every biblical passage is a command for us here and now. So Joshua 6 is God's word to us, but is, is it a command to wipe out our enemies? No, absolutely not. Some of you remember the very first week we had this class. Do you remember Psalm 137, that psalm we read? So that's the psalm that that says, okay, blessed is the one who takes your little ones, your little babies, and smashes them against the rock. It's this quite horrifying end to a psalm. And it's there in the Bible. Well, what do we do with that? Clearly, the answer is not go do that. I think this sort of procedure is a way of helping us reckon with that sort of troubling passage. Um, when I talked in the very first week about having a Christ-centered interpretation of Scripture or the idea of the threefold Word of God, this procedure is exactly what I'm talking about. This kind of passage is exactly what I'm talking about. Um, 
and this goes back to the point that Dottie made 20 minutes ago. Jesus is the meaning of the whole Bible. So if you take nothing else away from this class tonight, take that idea away. Jesus is the meaning of the whole Bible. We interpret all the passages of the Bible in light of that. So remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus at the end of the Gospel of Luke, where the Bible doesn't make any sense to them until the risen Christ starts to interpret it to them. And he says, well, look, the whole Bible is actually talking about me. So what we need to do, I think, is figure out a way to look at Joshua 6 and see it in some hidden, perhaps mysterious sense as pointing to Jesus. In addition, we have to recognize the difference between what we see in Joshua 6 and what we see in the ministry of Jesus. So the New Testament portrays Jesus as decisively rejecting the advancement of God's kingdom through violence. Um, this is probably, it's probably one of the signature differences between the Old and the New Testament. So you, you can see some examples here, right? He tells Peter, Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword in Matthew 26. He tells Pilate, my kingdom is not according to this world. Pilate says, if you're the son of God, get some heavenly help. You know, why don't you get yourself freed? And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, in Ephesians chapter 6, um, there's a similar idea. Paul, Paul or whoever wrote Ephesians says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. So in other words, there's this idea that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not going to make ground spiritually by punching the guy in front of us. <laughs> our opponents are spiritual and not the physical person in front of us. So I think um, the ministry of Jesus provides a very important counterpoint to some of what we see in a passage like Joshua 6. So you can see that this is a little bit different than the way people sometimes read scripture, right? It requires a greater degree of thoughtfulness and a greater degree of reflection, but I think it's, it's well worth it. This doesn't mean we're taking the Bible less seriously, it means we're taking it more thoughtfully. We're taking it more seriously because we're reading it with our brains as well as our hearts. Okay, so the last thing I have is just some, one quick suggestion for how to read a passage like this as good news. Okay, first, Joshua 6 can be read as a reminder that God is ultimately victorious over the forces that oppose him. If I were gonna preach this text tomorrow, that's probably where I would try and start. God is ultimately victorious over the forces that oppose him. Um, this is very much how Jesus is depicted in the New Testament. He is not only the Lamb of God who is sacrificed for our sin, but he is a victor in the battle. Um, there's an early way of talking about what Jesus does on the cross that you find in the New Testament that's just called Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. And it draws inspiration, I think, from passages like this one. You can also see passages like Colossians 2, 11 through 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55 as ways of talking about Jesus' death and resurrection as victory in battle. 
right? Now, of course, this is different from what we find in Joshua 6 because in some ways Jesus is victorious in battle by suffering the forces of violence rather than meeting them out. But I think that's a pretty cool, interesting way to preach Joshua. Joshua 6 depicts the walls surrounding Jericho tumbling down in response to God's mighty word, to the trumpets, to the shout. The other thing I think you could do is say, what if we tied this passage, tied Joshua 6 into Ephesians 2 with its powerful depiction of the walls of hostility between Jews and Gentiles falling down? Let me just read this for you because you may not know it off the top of your head. I, so I knew this passage well enough to know I wanted to tie it in, but not where it was. So I had to Google it. I was like, it's in Ephesians somewhere. I don't know where it is. Where is it? So Paul or whoever says this in Ephesians 2. So then remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So this is a Jewish person talking about Gentiles and saying, you were Gentiles uh, by birth. You didn't have Jesus in your life. You didn't have circumcision. You didn't have a covenant. You didn't have anything. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. So, this is part of what I mean when I talk about letting scripture interpret scripture. Like, I think this image of a wall tumbling down, not as an, um, an introduction to battle, but as an introduction to reconciliation. That's an image we find in the Bible. And I think it's, it, this isn't just like a clever thing that Dave thought up five seconds ago. This is a theologically legit and indeed very theologically traditional way to read the Bible and read Joshua 6. So I, if I were going to preach a sermon on Joshua 6, I would start with this idea of God being victorious over the forces that oppose him in Jesus, and I would end by talking about Ephesians 2, about the wall separating God's people and other people coming tumbling down. I especially like that because what you see in Joshua 6, Joshua 6 is one of those passages where God's people are really opposed to everyone else, right? It's a battle, and God's people are victorious, and they're wiping out everyone who's not part of Israel. What you see in Ephesians 2 is this vision of reconciliation, of, um, of Israel opening up to encompass the whole world. So now the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and pagans has come tumbling down and they're all part of God's family in Christ. So it's a much more, it's a very Christian vision. I think it is a much more outward facing, less um, polarizing vision. Okay, that was a heck of a lot. Those of you who need to go can go. Those of you who wanna ask questions, go ahead and ask questions and I'll stick around. Thanks, Dave. So is another way to look at 
Joshua, this, these verses that we've been looking at, is another way to look at that by saying simply that um, as hard as this is to reconcile in our, with our human brains, at least the Old Testament God was willing to allow or even facilitate some pretty bad things happening in order to achieve a higher purpose, right? So is, how do we weave that notion yeah. into what God was doing oh, back that's then? That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, you guys have regularly asked me at least one stumper in this class every week, and I'm really enjoying it. So just to rephrase your question, right? Part of what I hear you asking is, okay, if God's ultimate intention is to embrace the whole world in Jesus Christ, why then doesn't he cut to the chase? Why do we get instead this, this stuff that strikes us as so difficult about uh, yeah, about God's people waging war against another people group. I don't know. I got I to ponder that. I mean, I, I think it has something to do with establishing the unique identity of Israel over against everyone else. So I think part of the challenge, right, is that I'm, I'm still in a place where I'm like, what? what's, what's going on in this passage exactly, right? Part of the answer, I think, has to come from what God is doing in Israel is building up a special people, a chosen people, an elect people that are different from all the others. And so, that's correct, yeah, who are quite recalcitrant, right? Um, and so, whatever we, we may make of this particular passage or other passages like it, the overall redemptive sweep of what's going on in Israel is establishing that God is the one God who has made an irrevocable covenant with just these people. And if God cuts to the chase, there's no process of appreciating that on the human side. In response to Jeff's question, <laughs> now I was just wondering if, if uh, it's just simply... In order for us to learn, we have to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And the mistakes that were made were those that involved this destructive behavior. And then Jesus told us that, you know, this is the way we should be behaving. We should love our neighbor as ourselves. Mm -hmm. And he maybe, when Jesus was saying that, people were reflecting back on what had happened in the past, what they had learned from scripture in the Old Testament, and maybe said, yeah, maybe this was a series of mistakes, and this is truly the way we should, we should behave. I'm not sure if I'm going way out there on this, but I think of Joshua 6 as a metaphor, the chosen people, mm -hmm. the pure chosen people of God, could not let themselves be defiled. Hmm by the wickedness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they couldn't just kill some of the wickedness right. they yep. had to kill all of the wickedness and we're called to kill all of the wickedness in our hearts mm -hmm. that we are not to just kind of follow Jesus we have to fully commit and fully sure. follow Jesus sure I think that's a really interesting thought-provoking way of reading this text yeah for me, I think context is really important. And I think at this particular time, 
Um, Israel is a very, very young nation. It's not even really a nation at all. It's mm -hmm. peoples. Yep. And if you are trying to keep peoples together, these are powerful stories mm. to say God is on our side. God is with us. And I think the message that if you follow God, if you allow him to lead, you will go on. We've heard that in the New Testament. Yep. Um, you know, leave the gold, leave the, the silver, leave, leave everything and follow me. Sure. Those are those are similar yep. themes. Um, one part that was interesting was that you know the the things that are good that we're giving away for um, for sacrifice that the priests can eat them though. Mm -hmm. um, that's interesting because I think that also foretells some of the problems that we had with Christ overturning the <laughs> tables. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So you know you know so who's who's writing this? And what is the purpose behind it? So if mm. it's okay for the priest, what is the intent? But I think if we're telling a story to try to bind people together, to become something more, these are powerful stories to tell. And if we take them literally, um, they're really, really unsettling. Mm. But if you put the message of God at the center, God leading Instead of instead of the the soldiers, the warriors yeah. leading yep. the trumpeting of the horns, as Beth mentioned earlier, you know the ram's horns are are part of religious you know Jewish religious ceremony. So yep. that's at the fore. It's God that is leading, and if we follow, then we will live on. And um, that's that's how I'm able to to be on the, the red side of you know, <laughs> uh, discomfort, but, but also to be able to accept these passages. Yeah, thank you. Um, let's stop it there for tonight. Thank you everybody for coming and participating. This was a high degree of difficulty. This was a black diamond Bible passage. So thank you for your patience in skiing bravely along with me. Um, I appreciate you all so much. I look forward to seeing you next week. We're gonna talk about kings and kingdoms. Bless you. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks to our technical assistant, Matthew Sunblade. To find out more about our mission and ministry, visit our website, knoxpres.org. You can join us for Sunday worship in person or online as well. Thanks, and see you next week.